Hello and welcome to Hawkeye Nation. This is Hotcast, your Iowa football, basketball, and recruiting podcast brought to you by GoIowaAwesome and Rivals.com. I'm your recruiting analyst and host, Elliot Clough, at Elliot Clough on Twitter, joined by publisher Adam Jacoby, as well as our managing editor, Ross Binder, here on this Monday afternoon. And I'll tell you, folks, would have been here a little bit sooner, maybe last night, maybe this morning, but, uh, well, maybe last night, definitely not this morning. A bird got in my house, not my house, my girlfriend's house. Uh, if you saw my tweet, it was up momentarily. How ironic that I tweeted that. But uh, it was up momentarily, promptly deleted because I was like, whatever, I could tell the story fully on the podcast. And Adam really enjoyed that joke. And, <laughs> and it's shared on our premium board. So you can check it out there. Iowa.rivals.com backslash subscribe. Hawkeyes win. So birds win. This bird obviously lost getting in the house. So like it was a wild morning because I took a brief nap and I woke up to a bird flying over my head. Tiny sparrow. I didn't get a hawk or an eagle in my house, luckily, <laughs> girlfriend's house. But this bird flies over my head and uh, my girlfriend's dog, his name's Max. He's a mini golden doodle. So it's not like he was going to attack the, the thing anyway, but it flew upstairs I get it trapped in the bathroom uh, one way or another. And my goal initially in my sleepy stupor was to get the door or get the bat or get the bird out back down the stairs and out the front door. <laughs> that was the goal because it's bigger than a window. Get it out the front door. So it's freaking out in the bathroom and I could not get it outside of the door. I could not. It was perching up on the top of doors, perching up on the window, hitting the, the the mirror, and it's flying around in the shower. I could not track this thing down. I have a towel trying to get it. It's flying over my head, and you all know the instinct of when a, something's fluttering over your head or like a bug's by your ear. Exactly. So like that, it hits me in the chest like five times. It's hitting the, the mirror because it doesn't know where it's at, and then it's getting trapped up. Rachel has this thing. Um, it's like a cabinet that's above her toilet and it's stuck up there. And then I finally get the bright idea to shut the door, shut the dog out. Cause the dog's freaking out this entire time, open the window and I pop the screen and I get it out. And then all the while, once I finally get that idea, I open up the, uh, the door to try to see where Max is at or something. And I lost the freaking bird. There's a bird in the house and I lost the freaking bird. And I'm like, okay, did it fly out the window? What's going on here? I go downstairs. I didn't know if it got downstairs. I'm listening for fluttering. I'm listening for chirping. Nothing. I call Rachel. I called both my parents to see if they had any suggestions to find this. <laughs> I know this is a family friendly podcast to find this fucking bird. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's flying around down there. Or it's not flying around, so I don't know what's going on. I We had plans to record the podcast at noon. It was 1130. Uh, Max is outside. So he's freaking out, wanting to get back inside. I go back upstairs. My plan is to come back over here to get my microphone to record with you guys. Rachel has called her landlord at this point in time. They're going to send somebody over to get it. And all the while, I don't even know if the bird's in the house or not, because I wasn't sure if it flew out the window. So 
I go upstairs to get my shoes out of her guest room and the bird somehow got in the room where the door is closed. There's like an opening like this big under the door, under the door. So I think it got in that way. I open the door. I'm looking for my shoes and all of a sudden <laughs> it's flying across the, the room. I'm like, okay, I know where it's at. There's two windows in there, luckily. So I shut the door. I open up both windows. I pop the screens. And I'm like, <laughs> bird. the bird is perched on like a painting she has in there. So I'm trying to like scare it. I'm going, ah, ah, and like waving at it stuff. It, it's and a it's patron not, of the arts, clearly. It's not moving. The bird is not moving. And so I wrapped up the towel and I was like trying to whip it. <laughs> I don't know, maybe stun it and throw it outside. But it eventually falls, goes under like a bedside table. I move the table. I throw the towel on the bird, grab it with my hand, put it out the window. It's done with. Here we are. That was my morning. So hot cast brought to you by that stupid freaking sparrow that got into my girlfriend's house. Here we are. Let's talk football. Adam, you and I were in Madison this weekend. I, well, before we do that, I guess, unless you guys have any extra thoughts on this bird fiasco that you want to share this morning. I, I would just say a uh, shout out to Roy Higgins. Hawk, hawk, hawk. And, <laughs> and now it's Sparrow, Sparrow, Sparrow. Uh, oh, shout out to Higgins, man. Yeah. He was on TV this weekend. Ross, did you yes, see that? Oh, yeah, he was front and center on the broadcast. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty cool. Yes, the uh, it's a he's a fan favorite. That's for sure. Um, anywho, speaking of football game this weekend, Hawks more or less written off by I think us included in there. I mean, if the weather was predicted to be nice, I would have said probably 24 to 6, 24 to 9 Badgers win. Weather really wasn't that bad. Hawks go in there. Uh, wouldn't I wouldn't say they dominated on the ground, but LaShawn, LeSean Williams had enough plays to make it appear as if they did that 82 yard score. There are a couple other plays where he got shoestring tackled that he very well could have scored on. Of course, passing game ineffective. Defense absolutely dominant. That helps when they're starting quarterback. I think he, there was news that came out that he broke his hand, hit his helmet on on uh, Jay Higgins' hand during that game, but. Hawks take the victory. So many, so many things to to take away from that game. And um, man, I, I'll just I'll just toss it over to to you guys. Any anything else uh, that that really sticks out from that game? We'll get into the thick of it all, of course. But when you look at that game from an overarching standpoint, that that really stuck out for you. Obviously, the Deacon Hill victory. But but I'll I'll toss it over to you, Adam. So one thing, and and Ross, you can. Sort of, I, I don't know if this translated on to TV or not as well, but one of the things that I noticed from the game that, that really jumped out at me was physically, this did not look like an upset win for Iowa. Iowa was every bit as prepared for that battle in the trenches as Wisconsin was. And you saw it straight from the opening drive, where I think the first five, six plays were all run plays and they're all productive run plays, right? It, it wasn't handed off, run into the line, loss of one. It was, here's a hole, four yards. Here's a hole, six yards. Here's a hole, nine yards. Here's a hole, three yards. Just over and over and over. They didn't have to put the ball in the air and they were already in Wisconsin territory. 
Now, like you said, it took an 82-yard run for that run running offense to actually get on the board, and there were a few third down and fourth down calls that I'm sure fans are going to uh, double gas or uh, second guess, and and probably rightfully so, uh, because I, I I think Iowa could have scored more than 15 points in that game. But I would say, having watched that game from the press box, I did not look like a team that was a 10-point underdog. And I thought the Hawkeyes looked like they could beat Wisconsin at minimum five times out of 10. I, I thought it was an even matchup, and the team earned that win. It, it wasn't a fluke. It wasn't, you know, obviously 82-yard runs are special and rare. This was the longest one, the, the longest rush of the Kirk Ferentz era, amazingly. But the uh, previous one was Tavian Banks in 1997 against Iowa State. I uh, Yeah, surprise to me too. But that was a graphic I saw. Regardless, I thought Iowa's physicality on both sides of the line, especially as the game progressed, favored the Hawkeyes. And it didn't feel like a win that, you know, felt lucky felt fluky or anything like that they earned their way to six and one uh ross did did it look that way on tv too yeah i would say more or less that was the the feeling i got from the broadcast too that you know the, i didn't think this was the wisconsin team in terms of physicality that we you know have been accustomed to under bielema and then christ um you know obviously uh fickle luke fickle their new coach is you know changing things up on offense they're going with you know, more spread, more air raid approach and uh, still running the ball a decent amount. Um, I think they would have run it more on Saturday, but Allen was dealing with an injury and Malucci, their other running back, uh, broke his leg earlier this season. So they're a little little light at running back right now. But, you know, they're running more out of shotgun. It, but it, it's not the same, you know, just beefy attack that, you know, we've we've seen in the past where they just rely on that beef to kind of overwhelm uh, teams and just wear them down. Cause I've seen plenty of Iowa, Wisconsin games where, you know, the Iowa fans, you know, puts up a game effort, but you know, they just putting their heads against that Wisconsin brick wall for four quarters. It just, it doesn't happen. And by the end of the, end of the second half, you know, end of the fourth quarter, they're just, you know, worn down to nothing. And that's when Wisconsin has often, uh, you know, pulled away and, and won pretty easily. And that was more close to happening on Saturday. Did you happen to hear on the broadcast what specifically Braylon Allen was dealing with? Because all we heard in the press box was he went to the press or he went to the locker room and he's questionable with an upper body injury. And we didn't get more specifics than that. Did they say anything? They mentioned that he was kind of holding his arm and there were some shots on the sideline where it looked like he was kind of favoring his arm that like maybe it was a little tender or a little ginger so i that was my guess was that it wasn't it wasn't real comfortable for him and um that seemed to be his issue it, it looked like well he did still truck quinn schulte uh after coming back from that injury so <laughs> maybe that was his good shoulder i don't know yeah but yeah, yeah. He, he, he was a load on saturday and i yeah. like getting him one getting the win and, and two keeping him to only 75 yards rushing was Felt, felt like a pretty, pretty big statement for the Hawkeye front. Absolutely. Yeah, 18 
18 carries for for Braylon Allen, 87 yards is what he finished with, 4.6 yards per carry, uh, long of 18. Other than that, Jackson Aker ran the ball three times for 10 yards, Tanner Mordecai four times for nine yards, Braden Locke three times for seven yards. Um, other than that, just a whole lot of nothing on the ground. Let's also add in for Aker, um, was it three catches or four catches? Three catches, negative one yard net with a long of four. And that was because Iowa had every one of those plays sniffed out to perfection when they were swinging them out of the backfield. And Wisconsin not having that element to their offense made things so much more difficult, especially after Mordecai got hurt. Now, this might be a different conversation and something we can have at a later date, but is this exhibit A of why we haven't seen a whole lot of that type of offense in the Big Ten? I mean, I think there are other teams that have experimented with spread concepts and air raid concepts, um, and some of them have been pretty successful. You know, Ohio State the last several years has – has done that, but you know, there's also a difference when you're running that scheme. I think with, you know, a bunch of five stars, the way Ohio State is, and you know, they've got four NFL draft picks at receiver, and you know, another first round quarterback. Like, and not to mention, you know, their offensive line is loaded. Like, it, you can certainly run that. I think you can run any scheme effectively with the kind of talent that Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State have on a yearly basis. Um, it's going to be interesting for Wisconsin, though, as they, you know, go with this new approach. You know, how how will that work? Um, and we're going to see more of it with the with the teams coming into the Big Ten, too. You know, Oregon, Washington, USC, UCLA, there's some variety of that in their offensive attacks, too. So it's uh, – I think the thing that is beneficial for Iowa is that Phil Parker's been scheming against defenses like this for a long time now. And he – has a lot of experience at it. He's really good at figuring out how to slow these attacks down. Um, it's not perfect, but you know, when there's that big talent disadvantage, like Ohio state had last year, there's only so much Phil can do, I think. But when the talent disadvantage, when the talent level is more even Phil Parker's really good at getting Iowa in a position to compete against that offense or those schemes. I think. That was one of the yep. things that really jumped out to me. When, especially when after the game, we're talking to the defenders that were available. And I, I believe it was Castro that that mentioned that they had seen offenses like Wisconsin's pretty much all year. And for all the talk about, oh, Wisconsin's finally joining the 21st century. Oh, if Wisconsin can do it, why can't Iowa do it? I thought it was a little bit funny that Wisconsin just basically backed itself into the same prep scheme for Iowa's defense that the rest of the schedule has given them, you know, with maybe the exception of Penn state, but it, it's all been, you know, work the boundary quick pass. Um, you know, maybe the quarterback's a little bit of a threat to run, although uh, historically subjecting your quarterback to more hits than necessary from the Iowa defense, not a recipe for success. And it was a fluke injury for uh, Mordecai breaking his hand like that but it's you know he's what do you want to say over the last five years the 10th dozenth quarterback who's been knocked out of a game playing Iowa and not by dirty hits not by anything untoward nothing unsportsmanlike it's just 
this is the most important player on your offense, and you're letting him take hits that he doesn't need to take against this defense, it's just not a recipe for success. And Phil Parker and his defense and his scheme have proven it over and over. And it didn't look like there was anything about what Wisconsin was doing that Iowa hadn't seen over and over this year. And it's it's always a little bit funny that like, oh, we're we're doing what everybody else is doing. And okay, that that'll make your fans happy, but it's also gonna make Phil Parker happy. Arguably, I, I think it I think it could be said that the second string quarterback, once he came in, I thought he played, I don't know if better than Tanner Mordecai, but it provided a different challenge. But then the Iowa defense adjusted to this new challenge to this new quarterback and they couldn't do diddly squat there was that first drive the first drive I I put the video up of Cooper obviously I don't know if you would say he got beat on that go route by the Wisconsin receiver it looked like a little bit of a push off no call guy caught it It as a 42 yard gain Bryson Green made the catch uh, when matched up with Cooper Later in that drive, Cooper said, ball don't lie, and made that play on that fourth and one. I thought it was the big, arguably the biggest play, one of the biggest plays of the game, probably the most underrated play of the game. Um, also, another underrated play was when Mason Richmond had his first pass breakup of his career at Iowa, uh, when that pass went up in the air off somebody's hands, off Deacon or out of Deacon Hill's uh, hand. He, he made that pass, and it got popped up in the air. And, I mean – there were it was so much of Ben don't break and not even so much of it but when the big drives happened for Wisconsin when the ball was moving then it was Ben don't break other than that it was no bend no break because defense the Iowa defense really just handled them from opening uh, opening kick to to the very last play of the game one thing that really jumped out at me about that first drive was Wisconsin started it very deep in their own territory because of Torrey Taylor and his punting. And I mentioned this in the recap that I posted Saturday night. That drive that Wisconsin got no points out of, that Cooper DeGene um, snuffed out on fourth and one. And by the way, Cooper taking down a 6'2", 240 back like that by roping his ankles. Like it, it looked like he was at a, you know, steer rodeo. Draft stock. Boom, boom, oh, boom. Yeah. Yeah. He's same for he's Sebastian all... Castro yesterday yeah, or yeah. Saturday. But I mean, that drive was an 81 yard drive. If that ball goes into the end zone, 81 yards gets Wisconsin six points. If that ball's even at the 15 yard line, Wisconsin's not making a dumb decision there, right? Like that was Tory Taylor helped keep points off the board on that pun alone. And he did it over and over during that game. So, yes, Torrey Taylor was sharing uh, special teams player of the week honors with a guy who took two punts to the house. That's that's the amount of impact that anybody else in the Big Ten had to have to match what Torrey Taylor meant to Iowa's defense and, and keeping Wisconsin off the scoreboard as much as possible. Uh, you know, obviously, two punt returns, you, you have to honor that. But those two being 1A and 1B, and interchangeable is absolutely the right call. And I think everybody in that locker room knew immediately what an impact Taylor had on that game. Tell you what, looking at the box score from, from the game, Wisconsin's punter 
didn't have a bad game. Eight punts for 343 yards, 42.9 yards average, long of 51. That's a good game for a college football punter. Go to the other side of the box score. Tory Taylor looks like a god amongst men and shocking no one. 10 punts, 506 yards, long of 62, six inside the 20, zero touchbacks. That is insane. How do you win yeah. games? I had three, I mean, six inside the 20 and three inside the six. I mean, so uh, yeah, it was it was a masterclass. I mean, it was the 506 yards was his career high, um, which surprised me a little bit just because he's had so many opportunities to punt in games. But uh, you know, 506 is a lot of punting yards, and um, yeah, he he was just he was phenomenal. I mean, Adam's completely correct that Iowa, in no way, shape, or form, wins that game without what he did. And he meant so much to the defense. He meant a lot to the offense too, because one of the, I think the third and final, one of those punts that he was able to get deep down into the uh, Wisconsin six, that finally the defense got a three and out after that one. And then Iowa finally got the ball in good field position. Uh, So, you know, the field position game finally worked out for them. They got it around midfield. A few plays later, they kicked a field goal uh, that pushed it out to 10, six, which was big because, Wisconsin had, you know, they had a little, you know, stuff going for them. Then they'd made two field goals. It was seven, six. It was like, okay, you know, seven, six is not much of a lead. Um, But yeah, I mean, Torrey Taylor, just incredible. Absolutely incredible. One thing that um, one, one more quick thing to add. Uh, Jay Higgins mentioned after the game that the one of the added bonuses of pinning teams so deep one you're going to make them drive 90 yards against this defense to get into the end zone but two phil parker loves to get aggressive when teams are backed up against their goal line that's one of the reasons why i was so adept at scoring you know two points at a time at, at safeties and why we've seen it happen so often you get a quarterback under pressure when his heels are in his own end zone and more often than not, he's going to make a bad play, a rushed play, sometimes a disastrous play. And uh, this this poor lock kid, when Castro came on a blitz, and again, that's Sebastian Castro coming on a blitz on second and nine, which you don't see very often, except when the team's backed up like that. He forces lock to step up into the pocket, straight into all 315 pounds of YA black. And that was one of the most monstrous hits I've seen all season out of this defense. And there's been a lot to choose from. I mean, Black just smothered him. And I, the, the end result was pretty obvious at that point. But that is, that's a function of Phil Parker knowing the situation. And it's a function of what Tory Taylor allows the Iowa defense to do. Yeah, well, I was going to say, sure. I gotta, I gotta get this out, Russ. Gotta okay. get this Anchorman quote out. Yeah, YA killed a guy. <laughs> you should, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. You should find a safe house. Maybe lay low for a little while. I mean, I tweeted it out. I said, "Is YA gonna get charged for murder after that?" He popped him. Go ahead, Ross. I was gonna add that. Um, I mean, that was an incredible hit. And then at the end of the game, uh, Graves also just. Yep. Uh, crushed uh, lock on the, the the ball don't lie fumble, I believe. Um, 
So yeah, that quarterback really took uh, a pounding in the fourth quarter. Adam, little little quick breaking news here, uh, but the Hawkeyes just released their depth chart for the Minnesota game, as as we've been speaking here. LeSean Williams listed over Caleb Johnson at back. Interesting, also pretty well deserved, but not really a move that I expected from Ferentz, especially on you know the, the Monday after a game. Uh, usually a, a decision like that sort of eats its way in on Saturdays. Uh, but that is, I think, very notable. I, I didn't really see anything else in the depth chart that you know caught my eye, other than Stilianos over uh, Pascuzzi at tight end. I don't think any of us expected Eric all to, to be listed or anything like that. But uh, yeah, I, I would say big news is starting running back LeSean Williams for uh, the Floyd of Rosedale game. Any thoughts, guys? Yes. Um, I will recognize that one. And while I'm saying that, if you want to get that out on socials, Adam, go for yeah. it. Um, but uh, that is the big one that we first noticed. Obviously, look at tight end with Stilianos and Johnny Pascuzzi in there. And then you go to left corner, right corner in that third and fourth spot in the defensive backs because uh, – both without uh, TJ Hall and Deshaun Lee. Now uh, backing up Cooper DeGene and Jermari Harris are Devin Wilson, who is a sophomore out of Des Moines North, and then Brendan Diaz-Fernandez out of Belleville, Michigan, same high school as Deshaun Lee, correct? Correct me if I'm wrong there. I believe I believe so. I believe that's the case. Um, and so that's not – Great. I mean, uh, going into this last game against Madison or again against Wisconsin, rather, I would have figured that'd be the time to have the biggest concern about your third and fourth string cornerbacks being out because you're facing that air raid. If there's a time to not have Deshaun Lee, if there's a time not to have the TJ Hall, I, I think it's in this back half of the schedule. The uh, it's 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 I don't want to say it's easy because that's I think a little maybe a little hyperbolic and there's always trap games like the possibility of Iowa going 11 and one now is not completely out of reality when we're looking at the remainder of this schedule if there was a second loss I would have looked at it and on the schedule on its face and said it's Wisconsin yeah I think we all had that thought especially at the beginning of the season and and even with Wisconsin looking a little bit shaky over the course of the year. I mean, so did Iowa. So, um, yeah, I, I would say I'm, I'm not going to call it plausible that Iowa finishes the regular season 11 and one, but it's not completely implausible at this point. Now, you know, it's, it's another one of those situations where, yeah, Iowa's going to be favored, but if it's, you know, sort of like the dice analogy that I used on our last podcast, if this is a situation where you would expect Iowa to, you know, be the winner on, you know, four out of the six dice faces or die faces or what have you, um, you know, you would expect them to be, you know, favored in each of those. But over the course of six games, you would expect there to be like four wins. So, you know, it's it's still going to take some luck and, and a little bit of overachieving to make it to 11 and one. Uh, even though I, I don't really see an opponent left on Iowa's schedule that should be favored over the Hawkeyes. But yeah, I mean, the path is there and it doesn't seem too rocky 
So we'll see how Iowa handles that and especially handles the situation that you mentioned, which is so prevalent in college football. And it's just sort of a necessity of how these seasons go where you can't always be geared up 100% for each of these games, no matter how much the coaches want you to, no matter how much the players get it on an intellectual level, right? There are some games they just get more up for than not. And we'll see how Iowa navigates this depth situation in its secondary. I mean, Minnesota does know how to pass the ball. Uh, and if there's a situation where Gene or Jamari goes down again, uh, as we saw last season, are Diaz Fernandez and Hilson the guys to be able to step in there the way that uh, Deshaun Lee did at the beginning of the season for Harris? Or is it another situation like TJ Hall sort of being in a little bit too far over his head, like we saw against the Nebraska game last season? So a lot of things that Iowa needs to navigate here in terms of how do you stay up and how do you make sure that the guys, you know, your next men in are prepared for a game like this, especially when they're getting thrown into action by injury in front of them. Yeah. uh, To the point about Minnesota knowing how to pass the ball, technically true, but they are also 130th in the nation in passing offense, one spot ahead of Iowa in passing offense. So you know, you, you never know what's going to happen on Saturday, but I will say if there was a game to be a little light at cornerback, especially ahead of a bye week, you know, so you've got some time, hopefully for Hill and Lee, or Lee and uh, them to get healed up. Minnesota is probably not the worst opponent to be facing uh, if you're a little thin at cornerback this week. So hopefully uh, that'll that'll pan out OK for Iowa. Um I, in terms of the record thing that, that you guys are talking about, you know, I, I agree. I, my concern is just Iowa plays close games and the offense, you know, is what it is. The passing game is, you know, just hitting new lows, honestly. I, I didn't think it could. Anytime you're playing games that way, I just feel like your margin of error is so, so thin that, you know, it, it doesn't take much for something to go awry and, uh, you know, you're you know on the wrong side of one of those close games. So, Worcester can win all of the games remaining on its schedule. Uh, doing so, I think, is going to be extremely difficult unless, you know, just can they keep smoke and mirroring it the way they're doing? Or can the offense improve despite the fact that, you know, it's down – a backup quarterback or down to a backup quarterback. It's down to its fourth and fifth string tight ends and uh, you know, everything else that it's dealing with. So that's, that's what I'm looking for over these last five games. I think. Do either of you look at the remainder of the schedule and Adam, you, you hit it. So I'll, I'll probably go back to, to Ross here on this, but do either of you look at these remaining games on the schedule? You've got Minnesota at home this week, bye week, game at Northwestern, um, Rutgers, Rutgers, Illinois at home, and then at Nebraska to end the season. Ross, do you look at this and say, oh, that's a trap game, or oh, I'm going to be worried about that one? I mean, because like you, you made the point about Minnesota. Northwestern's terrible. Rutgers is Rutgers. 
Illinois is awful. They just somehow won a game against Maryland this weekend. And Nebraska has got the injury bug worse than Iowa. I mean, like, I'm I'm not saying it's they're going to be gimme games because of that that uh, issue of you know the the margin for error being so minimal. It's Iowa. The offense is just awful. Who knows where Deacon Hill is is going to go over these next few games? How much he's going to improve after six of fourteen for thirty seven yards and your best or your go to receivers out more than likely for the remainder of the season? We're not positive. We haven't heard anything on Eric all yet, but anyway. Do either of you look at these final few games and say, oh, that's that's one I'm really nervous about because it's it's difficult for me to find one. I mean, Illinois, Nebraska towards the end, Illinois is at home. Nebraska's on the road at 11 a.m. day after Thanksgiving. I I don't know. I honestly I, I think you can find reasons to be a little concerned about any of them. Um, you know, Minnesota this week. It's coming after the, you know, a really emotional, you know, dramatic win over Wisconsin. Can they refill the tanks in time? And this is the, what is it, eighth straight week they've had a game? Like, you know, just in terms of energy levels, fatigue, injury, like, you know, they, they need a bye week pretty bad, I think. And um, what do they have left for the tank this week? After the bye, Northwestern, not great, but they've been feisty for a few games this season. Kirk Ferentz has a pretty lousy record in games after by weeks also, which is explicable to me, but it is what it is. Um, Rutgers, they've got a good defense. I will give them that. And if you can get into a defensive, you know, slugfest with Iowa, you might only have to hit one or two plays and and who knows. Illinois, I, I think they've been a mess this year, but they also just beat Maryland on a, on a field goal this last weekend. So, you know, they're not, and I, I suspect Bielma is probably going to be pretty pretty stoked for that that game, especially if Iowa's in a position where it looks like they're you know Big Ten West favorites. He definitely might relish a little spoiler activity there. And then wrapping up at Lincoln, uh, they beat Iowa last year, so I'm not going to rule things out with that with them at all this season. You know, like you said, though, do any of them like worry me like, oh, that's, you know, that's I going to mark that up as a loss on the schedule? Probably not. Not right now. But I think there are legitimate reasons to say, oh, I was, you know, better be ready. This is not going to be an easy game. Yeah, I would agree with pretty much everything that that Ross said. Um, and Elliot, it's, it's sort of like I told you uh, about a week or two ago. None of these teams in the Big Ten, especially in the Big Ten West, are good enough to be predictable. And with some of the results that we saw uh, this week and this this past week, there's fewer teams that are bad enough to be predictable in the Big Ten and in the Big Ten West, too. And so it's there's there's only so much that we can sort of divine about how these teams are going to face each other when we don't really know what that execution level is going to be for either side. And Iowa has so many things to clean up as the coaches and players will be eager to tell us uh, tomorrow when we meet with them. And yeah, there's, there's things about each of these teams that could give Iowa a lot of trouble, even though I expect Iowa to be favored in the remaining games. And we also know that, you know, this team, what's a good way to put this is you know obviously they they embrace the next man up 
sort of situation, but it's always just one or two injuries away, especially with how many injuries have befallen this team already, right? Losing guys like Eric All, Luke Lachey, Caden McNamara, Noah Shannon, um, you know, for a while, Caleb Johnson, losing guys like that, uh, you know, Jamari Harris, we we haven't seen him back at 100% or like, you know, performing at 100% yet. Those things add up and remove so much margin for error for a team that's built like this and for a team that is winning in these ways. They embrace the pressure, especially on defense, and you know they 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 take care of business on special teams at a at a very high rate, and that helps clean up a lot of mistakes and help on, on offense, and helps make the defense easier, uh, the the defense's job easier to keep points off the board. But you know, one more injury especially to an impact player. And I'm not going to, you know, name names because that, that sort of feels like whistling past the graveyard, but there are, there's a lot of indispensable players in Iowa's two deeps right now. And injuries are just a part of the sport as we've unfortunately been reminded over and over this year. And if that bug hits any of those guys too, you know, all of a sudden that, that cause for concern can turn, you know, that, that other teams can pose to Iowa, whether it's, you know, structural, whether it's scheme wise, something that can be a cause for concern about the guys that Iowa has healthy now can turn into a big, big, big problem. If I was going to backups and guys who aren't in position to succeed. And I, I, one example is something that we saw in the Wisconsin game where on that fourth down play where Iowa tried to run the um, reverse or end around or jet sweep or whatever you want to call it for Nico Reganey, Raggini, pardon me. And the guy who had to make the big block to, to spring Nico and, and get him into space for that first down was true freshman tight end Zach Ortworth. And against a Wisconsin defense, and, and that's just not a position to succeed. And, there's no reason to believe that he would have been the guy that had to make that block if Iowa still had depth at tight end. And so between that and obviously, you know, we're, we're not going to keep dragging TJ Hall's name through the mud. But again, like a, one injury and Nebraska all of a sudden had something it could exploit last year. So, it, it, you know, this there's so much unpredictability in terms of what is awaiting Iowa and stuff that we just have no chance to be able to predict or or base any sort of expectations off of but as it stands right now Hawkeyes look like they're in good shape for an eight win nine win maybe you know double digit win season regular season and then who knows where the season goes from there for now if I were to look at it I would say just based on schedule like I think there's one loss in there because it's just so bad. Like if, if, cause I, I do think it's going to be a double digit win season at, at this rate, just by the way, especially coming off this weekend where the defense was so good and the run game was astronomically better than what we've seen to this point. I, Georgia Barnett wasn't BS, BS in us. They're, they're getting better. The offensive line mm-hmm. is getting better. 
Um, and, and we're starting to see why Kirk Ferentz had that level of belief in him. I mean, Lee Sean was, was great this week. And I think that's the best game we've seen from him. Maybe then uh, a couple weeks ago, was that Western Michigan where he had that big, long touchdown run when, yeah, that's what I thought. So he's had a couple really good games this year. Then you look at, obviously we need to talk about Eric all before we move on. Um, that's terrible. He's a good dude. He's um, always in good spirits when he talks with us and he always raves about his teammates. Um, draft stock was starting to explode. Who knows where he's going to go? Um, if, uh, you know, regarding the, the injury, we don't know the specifics of it, but it didn't look good. That's, that's the most we can say. Um, and, who knows what's going to happen for the remainder of the season for him. There was a report that Luke Lachey wants to come back for the bowl game, or he might be able to, who knows what's happening there. We don't know. Addison of That's something I'm going to ask about on Tuesday, like the extent of his injury, if he's going to be able to come back sooner rather than later. I'm an Addison of believer. I'm a Steve Stilianos believer. We haven't seen a ton of Pascuzzi um, other than blocking situations, he probably he or Stilianos would have been the blocker, not Zach Ortworth in that situation. And again, that's not a guy we're picking on. That's a that's a position he was put in that he shouldn't have been put in in the first place. Um, and didn't like the play call either in that moment. Shocker. Take the points in that moment. I mean, anyway, Drew Stevens also two field goals within the forty within the forty uh, yard range. He went, he had a miss last week and that blocked field goal. So that's got to be good for him. Um, but regarding the offense, one more time, Jazz Patterson barely played. I think he, he went a couple snaps. Um, maybe that's encouraging that he comes back this week and he's, he's closer to be being able to play. And like the more these injuries pile up, the fewer and fewer excuses you have when it comes to not getting the receivers the ball. Why the hell did you bring in Caleb Brown and Seth Anderson if they're not going to have the ball in their hands, especially when your top three tight ends aren't freaking playing, aren't touching the field, and your second string running back isn't touching third more than likely now with Leishon at the top. But what excuse do you have? Oh, it's a part of the scheme. Well, change the goddamn scheme. Like... Especially now, like we've been saying that, you know, media has been saying that fans have been saying that for years. Well, now you don't have this premier tight end. That's probably going to go in the first few rounds of the draft. You have to put the ball in Nico Ragaini's hands, in Seth Anderson's hands, in Deontay Vine's hands, in Caleb Brown's hands. I don't think Caleb Brown touched grass on Saturday. And given the circumstances, we don't know about him coming back and what's the likelihood of, of him touching the ball and, and all of those things just because he had that time off. But I don't know how I mean, they're going to keep running the ball, especially if they're running it like they did this last weekend. But do a play action and have a go route for God's sake. I think there was a ball that Deacon threw that was probably like 40 yards to Deontay Vines that fell incomplete. I don't know that it was anywhere close to him, but they unleashed the Deke one time. And when your running game is working that well, I mean, you don't want to make unnecessary risks or take unnecessary risks, but there's an opportunity there when LeSean Williams is running the ball like he was on Saturday. 
Yeah, I would agree. And and we saw we, we've seen over the last couple of weeks, as a matter of fact, that teams are just not really bothering all that much with deep safety help. And that's something that can be exploited, especially now that the offensive line and this is something that I was going to be putting in an article uh, or or a, a premium board post uh, later today. But do you guys find it a little amazing that offensive line is already the most stable unit on the offense this season, and it's not even close? Like after the last two years, who saw that coming? Uh. By the midpoint of the season, but it, but oh. it's also it, that's for you know for how many fans fired uh, Coach Barnett over the off season, and, or after you know, the Penn State game, and after the Penn State game, we we were told it was what a new low for Iowa football. Um, yeah, you know this is what happens when five year olds write your message board content, but. <laughs> No, yeah. I mean, if, if, if you're older than five years old, you know that's not true. But regardless, <laughs> the fact that Iowa has been able to, you know, sort of keep the pace on offensive line and, like, actually get these guys to gel and actually have them on the field when they're supposed to be on the field as opposed to too early. Now that they've been able to get that together, Rusty Feth has been a tremendous uh, addition not only to the team but to that starting lineup the the running game has just leveled up with Feth in there that is sort of the foundation that the offense has to build itself off of for the rest of the year and that also includes taking better care of Deacon Hill because how many times did we see Iowa drop back on third down and there was just nothing there and you know there's there were uh, blitzers on Hill within minutes and and he just doesn't have that pocket awareness and, and navigation that McNamara has. So he's also not a throw it away guy. He's not going to no, throw it to the sideline. No, not yet. At least, um, you know, Ferentz might try to coach that into him uh, one way or another over the rest of the season. But, you know, it's, that's sort of the next step for the offensive line to help Hill reintegrate his wide receivers. But at the same time, how many offenses have we seen Iowa play who have no difficulty getting the ball to the receivers out on the boundary? And yeah, against Iowa's defense, you know, you get three, four, five yards out of it, but rather consistently and, and to a uh, more consistent extent that than you see out of Iowa's passing offense right now. So Ference is notoriously, famously averse to changing anything about his approach midseason. And when you ask, it's like stepping on a landmine. But um, shout out to a few reporters on that front. But, you know, it, it is a situation where it's it's a whole lot like 2004, where you just the the injuries that happen in front of guys keep taking away dimensions of your offense well, then you just have to sort of lean into something unbalanced and just win however you can. And so far, they've been doing that. And so far, it's been with the rushing game. But it's it's sort of time to say, hey, we don't have the dudes to do this tight end happy offense that we thought or that we did have in week one, week two. And then, you know, after that, still even in week three, the Haases aren't there for that anymore. And 
it it really might be the difference between a nine win season and an eleven win season. How quickly Iowa adjusts to that personnel situation, it really might. Yeah, Adam, you brought up the two thousand four season. That's what I've been thinking about all weekend. Honestly, is Iowa, you know, we were both around for that season. We remember it. You know, everyone remember everyone who was around remembers that fondly because it was it was essentially a magic trick. Iowa won a Big Ten championship with no running game to speak of. It was remarkable. And now they're kind of trying to do flip it and can they win the Big Ten or at least the Big Ten West with no passing game. And I it's a fascinating uh experiment. Uh, it's nerve wracking on Saturdays for sure. And it just, it seems exponentially harder to win, especially in the modern, you know, the current day of college football to win with no passing game versus no running game, because it's just so incredibly hard to move the ball on offense. If there just isn't that threat to throw the ball and ability to move the ball through the air at all. And that's what makes these these last five games, I think, so nerve-wracking that even if Iowa looks better than their opponent on paper, if they're going to be favored by the spreads, um, that inability to move the ball through the air just is such a significant handicap on offense that it's going to make everything really, really nerve-wracking. And, you know, you've got Minnesota, you've got a bye week. You know, maybe if, if you're going to get any sort of thing going with the receivers I think it's going to have to happen probably during that bye week to try and you know say okay we don't have the tight ends anymore we're going to have to use receivers more what does that look like try it you know you got to figure something out during the bye week um we'll I guess we'll see in a few weeks if that happens or not but I I I do think that is the storyline on offense for the the rest of this season we shall see how, how that pans out going through the remainder of the football season. And now we would not be doing our jobs properly if we did not talk about the crossover at Kinnick yesterday. Adam, you and I made it. What a freaking event, man. 55,000 people shatters the previous record for women's basketball. I believe it was 29,000 is is what I had heard, but 55,000 people showed up yesterday, and boy, you could tell by the noise that we heard. You were on the field, on the court, so to speak, uh, towards the or for the first quarter and a half when I was up in the press box. I could feel it up there, but you could – it was tangible, tangible down on the field. Uh, I mean, the IOWA went on for a good 10, 15 minutes in the third quarter, fourth quarter, but – absolutely bonkers environment and that is just a testament to caitlin clark lisa bluter and where this program is and where it's going to continue to go yeah i was pleasantly surprised well i i I don't want to say that i wasn't expecting the iowa fans to be loud because i was expecting them to be loud i was not expecting them to be that loud when caitlin hit her first three-pointer of the day they popped like a grenade. That was, I mean, there were touchdowns that did not get applause like that, that didn't get that boom, quick noise that, that Iowa scored, that, that did not get a reaction out of Kinnick like that. And that is how invested this fan base is in that Iowa women's team. 
And it goes so much deeper than just, you know, everybody likes Caitlin Clark. That's a big part of it. Don't get me wrong. It, you know, just like Coach Bluter said after the game, Caitlin sells a lot of tickets. True. But those tens of thousands of fans aren't there just to see one person. Because if they are, they're not keeping that IOWA chant rolling for, like you said, 10, 15 minutes. Uh, Iowa even tried to stop, like the stadium crew even tried to stop it with that like ad for special exclusive crossover hats. And then the, the, you know, the Pancheros burrito lift, et cetera, et cetera. As soon as that burrito lift is done, it goes back to I O W A. Like it was incredible. And that goes deeper than we're here to see one player that goes deeper than, Oh, we just found out about women's basketball a couple years ago. Right. That is, a fan base that has been in Lisa Bluter's corner for now, what, 20, 25 years uh, that has been invested in this team and its star athletes for as, you know, as far back as so many of them can remember. Uh, I would wager that a majority of the people that were in that stance who are, you know, old enough to remember somebody like Christine Grant very specifically do remember Dr. Christine Grant. And that turns this an event like that into something that is almost elemental to Iowa fans that that it's a an opportunity to celebrate the existence of the women's program to celebrate the the fact that Bluter's been there for coming up on a quarter century to right it's it's everything that's almost like a part of an identity of a whole lot of those fans. And yeah, Caitlin is the catalyst for all that because all of that loyalty has been there for so long to begin with. It took somebody like Caitlin to capture that imagination and turn it from support into that full throated sort of thing, because she rewards the fans so regularly uh, with big performances, big moments, especially like there's no lights that are too bright for her. She had a triple double <laughs> in in windy conditions in, in, where she couldn't even make more than half of her free throws. Caitlin Clark couldn't make more than half of her free throws outside. Still finished with a triple double, some absolute dimes. And every time she had a big game last season, and for the most part, the season prior to that, that's when she steps up in big moments and fans happily, gladly gravitate toward those players that reward as much of that effort that the fans can put out too. That's why she's such a big deal to the program. That's why she's such a big deal to fans, to coaches, et cetera, et cetera. She wants that big stage. She lives for that big stage. She lives for all of these eyes on her. She, she, she says more, 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 more. And that's what brings her greatness out. And fans, knowing that it's as simple as that, that all you got to do is show up. All you got to do, let's let's break 50,000. Let's, even if you're sitting in the south end zone and you're just watching on the Jumbotron, still come on by. We're, we're doing it for charity. And the fans showed up for it. And that's that speaks to so much about the Iowa women's basketball fan base. And it speaks to Caitlin Clark in that order, I would say. Uh, do you guys agree with that? 
yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's uh, nothing I would disagree with in what you said. You know, I, he's thinking about, you know, the what Bluter's built, and this is, you know, kind of that classic, it's an overnight success story that's been years in the making. I mean, yeah, she's been here since 2000, had lots of success, and, and it, but it's really been ramping up, you know, the last five to ten years, you know, with, you know, so many great players she's had, you know, with uh, Megan Gustafson and then Kathleen Doyle and, you know, then Clark comes um, to just take it to the next level. And it's just like every step along the way, it's getting bigger. It's getting better. You know, they're, they're getting farther in the tournament. They're, you know, winning more awards. And, you know, then you've got Caitlin winning everything imaginable. <laughs> they had a scroll on BTN yesterday that listed all of the awards she's won in three years and it was ridiculous. It was like 75 things, and it was just like scrolling across the the screen for like five or 10 seconds. And it's just the, the scroll know, is for, still going as we speak. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Yeah. Like if you try to put it all on her like Wikipedia page, like you would just be scrolling and scrolling and scrolling for a half hour. It's it's remarkable. And um, but that's all based on the foundation she's built and that she's just continued to find ways to improve and improve and, you know, just keep getting those players. And like you said, Caitlin, you know, she's the catalyst. She takes it all to another level that, you know, we've never seen before and Iowa fans have never seen before. And that's the other factor that, you know, I think really excites people is that this is uncharted territory for uh, Iowa, Iowa women's basketball in particular, but kind of for Iowa sports in general, like these are not, Iowa does not play in a lot of national championship games. I think we all know. And um, we don't have athletes like Caitlin Clark in other, other sports, you know, there, there are some phenomenal wrestlers and Luca Garza was an incredible basketball player and, you know, lots of first run NFL draft picks. So we've been blessed with a lot of incredible Iowa athletes to watch for sure. But even among all of those great players, she is a one of one. She is, she is her own tier uh, especially in our lifetimes. Like it's, yeah. and the fact that she's able to do what she does, like you said, on the biggest stage, the lights get brighter. She gets bigger. She gets better. It's, it's remarkable. You know, we've, I've never seen anything like it. And I don't think I, I will again in an Iowa, you know, uniform. So it's, it's just amazing to be able to get to, to see something like that on, on Sunday and, and to witness it. Now for, the team as a whole, Adam, this is something you'll definitely be paying attention to this season as our women's basketball beat writer for the site is the fact that, well, you don't get to a national championship game. If you got one really good player, you got to have several really good players. Of course, Gabby Marshall out there. She's an electric shooter. Uh, the I think she's a true freshman, maybe a, 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 a red shirt freshman. She hit a three. Um, I think she took like 19 threes a game in high school. I can't remember her name off the top of my head. Number two. Oh, uh, T- Taylor McCabe. Yeah. She, Taylor McCabe. I mean, she played last year, but, but. Sparingly. Oh, did she? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But she's, she's um, an underclassman, underclass woman, underclass player. Um, sophomore. I I'm 90% sure, but nonetheless, yeah. One, she looked bigger, better built than, than last season. Cause last season she looked very small. And I, I don't know if it was just a, perspective from you know sitting courtside too but she looked a little bit incrementally you know better suited for the physicality of the big 10 molly davis uh looked she's awesome tremendous and you know, she was a great player at central michigan 
and had, you know, had a lot of flashes of potential there. Serviceable last season. And serviceable helped Iowa in a lot of ways last season. But she looked really ready to take the next step. She was making smart play after smart play. Uh, at one point I looked up, she had 13 points in 16 minutes, four rebounds. And a lot of them were not like she's the only one within 10 feet. Like she was fighting for the rebounds and she's, she's a small, small player. I want to say the second shortest player, maybe third shortest player on the, on the roster is, uh, among scholarship players. And she's just a playmaker. She just goes out there, makes plays, finds herself in the right position over and over and over. And now that production is starting to catch up to that talent. And, you know, I, I said it on Twitter, you could convince me, it wouldn't be too difficult to convince me that she's the second best player on the team. And when we're, we're talking about a roster, it's also got Kate Martin, who is like the glue of the team. And everybody will tell you that, um, you know, Gabby Marshall, tremendous defender, which she doesn't get credit for alongside her shooting, which she does get credit for, you know, she's a tremendous player too. Addie O'Grady, what was it 14 rebounds in 19 minutes or something like that? Like she also looks like she's taken a step up. I, there are a lot of really good role players on this team. But if Molly Davis is that kind of player consistently this season, that one makes Caitlin's job a whole lot easier, you know, sort of might even help her play off the ball a little bit, which she's going to have to learn to do in the WNBA. And two, it's going to make defenses have to make a lot of different decisions in terms of who they focus their attention on. Because if all you do is, you know, say, well, okay, we're, we're going to slow down Caitlin and Molly Davis can run, you know, two player games. I didn't even mention Hannah Stolke. <laughs> She's gotten better too. Davis and Stolke are completely capable of running a two person game between those two. Now, obviously you don't have Caitlin Clark back this season. Well, I mean, she couldn't go to the WNBA, but like, you don't bring her in to just be a decoy that stands in the corner or anything like that. But you can't just say, all right, everybody run at 22. Like that's, that's not how this team is built. And, you know, do they miss Monica Zanano? Absolutely. Are they going to miss McKenna Warnock? Absolutely. But this team looks dangerous and I will be shocked if they're not a top 10 to top five team come March. I, I, I'd be shocked if that weren't the case. I will be no. Well, one thing I did notice is that it's going to be a lot of small ball five um, is what we're going to see with that way. They get Hannah Stolke on the floor and they can just go and they can just go. But in the yeah. meantime, when they did have a big out there in Addison O'Grady or Sharon Goodman, I thought they were both awesome. Both great rim protectors. I think there were some, some, you know, bunnies around the rim that that didn't quite go you could blame the wind you could blame the first game you could just blame the jitters um on that but Addison O'Grady had 14 rebounds and I thought Sharon Goodman played well as well I mean, they're not Monica Sonato they don't have to be Monica Sonato but I think Addison O'Grady is gonna have an awesome season and I think Hannah Stolke will as well Hannah Stolke runs the floor so well for a big, she fills her lane. She gets the ball from Caitlin and it's an easy layup. I mean, I, I saw that. I don't know how many times yesterday. 
Yeah, and it, it's that was sort of the first flash of her greatness last season was that ability to run the court, that ability to not only like get out in front of everybody, but when that ball gets to her, it gets up and it gets to the rim and it usually gets in uh, at a at a very high rate, especially for somebody who is like mid stride and outrunning everybody else on those courts. Like there's no shortage of athleticism in the Big Ten in women's basketball like the big 10 is pretty close to the gold standard in terms of level of play level of um preparedness and and athleticism for the next level too i mean how many teams in the big 10 are capable of running most other teams off the court and Stulky is that level of athletic that she can still create mismatches, still find herself open in transition. And when you've got that, not only does that help you know, generate layups in transition, but she's a pretty smart passer. And if there is actually a defender back, all of a sudden those trailing shooters, and we're, we're not just talking about Caitlin Clark, but we're also talking about, as we've mentioned before, Molly Davis. Uh, we're also talking about Gabby Marshall. We're also talking about Taylor McCabe. We're also talking about uh, Kylie Fireback, who looked great. Uh, did not look like somebody coming off of an ACL tear uh, at, at the crossover. Her athleticism is a dynamic element for this offense. And yeah, it still pushes that offense more guard heavy you know, front or um, backcourt heavy than what it was last year and years prior and all that. But that is that, you know, she can move and shake a defender and all of a sudden forces that defense to have to worry about the help when the ball's in her hands. And when the defense is worried about that and what their rotations are going to be closer to the basket, once again, we're starting to get back to open shooting lanes for those gunners and Iowa has so many of them. And, you know, we, we've heard that Kate Martin has that shot in her bag too. And she's just never had to use it, especially with how these teams have been built in years past. It's a scorer. And especially now that she's coming off of whatever bug's been bugging her pun, not intended this time for the last couple of weeks, you know, once she's back to 100%, because we still haven't seen that out of her, you know, there's so many weapons on this team that I don't know how you look at Iowa's roster and say, okay, here's the blueprint to beat them without having like the New York Liberty <laughs> or or the Las Vegas Aces to do it. Like you have to have that like stacked WNBA type of roster. And there's there's a few teams like that in college basketball that have that. You know, South Carolina's loaded again. LSU's loaded again. UConn's going to have that. That's about it. I'm, that's that's pretty close to about it in terms of the teams that can go one, not only like one for one with Caitlin, but one through five, one through eight, one through 12 with Iowa's roster. And I don't think, I, I, I do think people are sort of sleeping on what Iowa can do this year, amazingly, somehow. But they're, they're ranked, what was it, preseason number eight? eight. Was it six? Okay. I think six so. is too low. Six is too low. I, I'm just calling that one right now. Six is too low. And come March, we'll see. I, I think they're a one seed. I, I am not. I 
I don't think it's going to be a whole lot of drama around that come Selection Sunday, but um, it, it depends on health, obviously. But I think talent-wise, they're absolutely right there to to reload and and put together another big season, even if everybody sees it coming, even if Ohio State's loaded, even if Indiana's loaded. Boy, you know, those teams, it, it's not Iowa stuck in the room with those teams. It's those teams that are going to be stuck in the room with Iowa. I'm telling you now. All along with uh, us on iowa.rivals.com and on Twitter, Adam underscore Jacoby, to uh, follow along with women's basketball in Iowa City this season. I'll be covering the men. And, of course, Ross, he'll be uh, he'll be along with us for the ride between both as well as football, wrestling, and, and everything else on iowa.rivals.com. If you want premium content from us, head over to iowa.rivals.com backslash subscribe. And uh, you'll get all the recruiting content, basketball and football from myself as well. We appreciate you tuning into this episode of Hotcast brought to you by Go Iowa Awesome and Rivals.com. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, uh, which I think is actually going out the window here soon. I heard about that. I don't know. Apple Podcasts and Spotify at the very least. And YouTube. Drop a like, drop a comment, whatever you're thinking about women's basketball, that football game this last uh, Saturday. And then, of course, previewing Minnesota, Iowa going into this weekend. I will be doing that on Thursday. So stay tuned for that. For now, we'll see you next time.